Thanks, thanks, Paul, for turning me up. That, that helps. And I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we are starting a, a mini-series today, a three-week series, looking at the, the meaning and the importance of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to do that by looking today at Jeremiah 31. Then we're going to go forward to Luke chapter 22. So please have your Bibles open in front of you. Jeremiah 31. It's always good to see uh, open Bibles when God's Word is being taught so that you can see for yourself what is being said and so that you can check what is being said, uh, checking that it conforms to God's Word. So please uh, have your Bibles in front of you. And we'll be looking at Jeremiah 31 from verse 31 in just a moment. Great to have Robin and Bevan back. Welcome back after it seemed like a long time away. So, Well, in the last two days, I've had someone who was visiting from New South Wales tell me how amazing Hobart is. I've had someone who visited our home for the first time tell me how nice our house is. I had an old friend tell me how lovely my kids are. And I've had many people tell me how amazing my wife is. And it's really good to be reminded of these things because I forget. I forget these things. And Amanda Sue forgets things too, so you might want to remind her uh, about her husband if you happen to be talking to her afterwards. We take many, we take many good things for granted, don't we? Many good things. And we so quickly forget all the good things that we have right in front of us. And often we only become conscious of the good things that we have been given when they are, in fact, removed from us. Now, something that Christians so quickly forget is that we live in an extraordinary time of grace and blessing called the New Covenant. And maybe you didn't know that at all. Maybe that's not something you've forgotten, but something you haven't learnt in the first place, that we live in this extraordinary time of the outpouring of God's grace and blessing, which is called the New Covenant. A time that God's people in the Old Testament could only dream about in their wildest dreams. And this morning, I want to tell you from God's word that the new covenant, and I want us to be reminded that the new covenant is the time of God's presence and new birth. I want to tell you from God's word that the new covenant was put into effect by Jesus' death. And thirdly and lastly, that the new covenant is commemorated at the Lord's table. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to remind ourselves of this wonderful time that we live in, the new covenant, this great outpouring of God's grace and blessing. Because that's what the new covenant is. It's our first point today. The new covenant is the time of God's presence and new birth. The date is 600 BC, thereabouts. And the people of Jerusalem are facing a terrible catastrophe 
We read the prophet Jeremiah, we see that the people of God were drifting away from God. They were breaking his laws. They were giving their hearts to false gods and to idols. And they were about to suffer the dreadful consequences of their sin and their rebellion. In about 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes with his mighty army from the north and they surround Jerusalem and they put Jerusalem under siege and there's terrible suffering in the city. No food, little water, people even resorting to cannibalism. A terrible, terrible time. God's judgment was falling upon the city of Jerusalem for centuries of straying from his laws and commandments and straying to other gods. Now, what made things a hundred times worse is this. So, so you understand what's going on. The people have strayed from God. They're breaking God's laws and commandments. They've, they've turned to other gods They are suffering the consequences of this, awful consequences. And what made things a hundred times worse is that it was impossible for them to turn from their sin. They couldn't turn from their sin. They couldn't save themselves from, from their sin's consequences. Because Jeremiah had already said in chapter 13, verse 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Do you hear what Jeremiah was saying to the people of Jerusalem who had turned in their hearts from God, who were strayed from God, who were suffering the consequences of straying from God? He was saying, you can't change yourselves. You can't help yourselves. You you can't change your own hearts so that you'll begin to obey God. You you can't save yourselves from the the terrible judgment of God that is falling on the city. He'd also said in chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Desperately sick. That could also be translated... Beyond cure. Who can understand it? Can can you see what what, what Jeremiah was saying to the people of Jerusalem? You've strayed from God. You've broken his laws and commandments. You're suffering the consequences of that. And there's nothing you can do to change your hearts. There's nothing you can do to make yourselves obedient to God. There's nothing you can do to save yourselves from God's judgment for your sin. What the people of Jerusalem most desperately needed was God's forgiveness and new hearts. New hearts. And so listen to this promise. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Father, please. Help us to understand these words today. Give us attentive hearts and minds, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the people of Jerusalem who are hearing these words for the very first time. They are very aware that the calamity they are facing and suffering was the result of rebellious hearts, and disobedient hearts and God comes and he makes this tremendous promise he said I'm going to write my law on your hearts I'm going to write so where had the law been written so far the law had been written on tablets of stone hadn't it but now God is saying instead of the law being external to you on those tablets of stone I'm going to come and I'm going to write my law on your hearts. And I'm going to put my law in your minds. The law had been written on tablets of stone and placed into the Ark of the Covenant. And God says from now on, well, with this new covenant, my Torah will be on your hearts. It will be in you. It will be lodged and stored in you. And I will be your God. And you will be my people. These people whose hearts were rebellious. God is promising them new hearts, obedient hearts. Hearts on which will be written his law. Hearts that will love his law and will want to obey his law. And instead of being separated from God by the the, the curtains of the tabernacle... They would live directly in his presence. I will be your God and you will be my people. And no longer will you teach your neighbour, God says, know the Lord. Why? Because people will will already know the Lord. Jeremiah is not saying, by the way, that uh, he's not saying that there won't be Bible teachers in the future or that God won't give people to teach the Bible. We're very thankful for people who teach us the Bible, aren't we? In fact, uh, today I've got my, would you believe, my Sunday school teacher is here today, sitting in the back row, visiting from Perth, and uh, Gloria Mullane. So, and Ron Mullane was one of my mentors back when I was in the Salvation Army as a child. So would you believe my Sunday school teacher is sitting here this morning? Do you mind raising your hands? <laughs> Yeah. 
So all the blame goes there, right? So <laughs> it's great to have you with us this morning. And we are very thankful, very, very thankful for uh, good teachers. But God is saying that, that this time is coming, this tremendous time is coming. When you won't have to tell people to know the Lord, they'll already know the Lord. And you will know me, says God, in this new covenant. You will all know me from the least to the greatest. And we all know that this word, to know in the Old Testament, it never just means to know about, but it means to know in a personal relationship, to know intimately and closely. Can you put yourself in the shoes of the people of Jerusalem? Listening to this tremendous promise, they had strayed from God, hearts that were disobedient and hardened, they had strayed from God. And they were suffering the devastating consequences of that. And God is saying, I will bring about a new covenant. This is not going to go on. I'm going to come. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you from the heart, from the inside out. Instead of these hearts that are inclined to disobedience and to idolatry, I'm going to give you hearts on which my law is written. Hearts that will want to obey me. Hearts that will hate idolatry. And we will be in close relationship. I will know you. You will know me. It's a tremendous promise that God made to the people of Jerusalem. But there's a problem. There's something vital missing. What is one of the most important aspects of covenant making in the Bible? Because God makes many covenants in the Bible, doesn't he? He makes a covenant with, with Noah, with Abraham, there's the covenant with Moses and Israel, there's the covenant with Phinehas, the covenant with David. Whenever a covenant is made, what is always done to enact the covenant? What is always done to make the covenant um, come into life, as it were? It's a sacrifice. There has to be a sacrifice for the covenant to be enacted. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, it says that a covenant cannot be put into effect without blood. There must be that blood sacrifice before the covenant um, takes effect. And there's no blood here, you see. There's no, Jeremiah doesn't mention a sacrifice. There's no sacrifice has been made. And so on the one hand, you've got people listening to this tremendous promise, God saying, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to write my law on your hearts. I will be your God. You will be my people. We're going to be in intimate relationship. And yet, there's no sacrifice. There's no blood. There's no mention of a sacrifice that enacts this covenant. And so you've got the promise, but the promise is not being enacted. And so there must have been great joy on the part of the people to, to hear such a promise, but great frustration as well, because where's the sacrifice? How can this covenant be enacted if there's no sacrifice? 
And this is where we now turn to Luke chapter 22. So please turn with me to Luke 22. And we're in the same city of Jerusalem. And we're in an upper room. We're with Jesus and his disciples. They're eating a Passover meal. And these words are very familiar to you. But I hope that there's something that really leaps off the page given the Jeremiah 31 background. We read from verse 19, Luke 22, verse 19, that Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, can you, do you have a sense of how sensational this is, how magnificent this is? Because 600 years before, God had said, I'm going to make a new covenant, a tremendous new covenant. I'm going to write my law on your hearts I'm going to take away those rebellious hearts and give you God-loving hearts and I will be your God and you will be my people and we will be in intimate relationship and for 600 years it just remained a promise. For 600 years it was just a promise. And here in the upper room in Jerusalem on the night before Jesus' death Jesus says this cup He takes the the cup of wine, this cup symbolising my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, the sacrifice is about to be made, the sacrifice that will enact this covenant. This covenant is about to be put into effect by the sacrifice of myself, of my blood. My blood, said Jesus, puts the new covenant into effect. And why is that? Because his blood would would pay for the sins of his people. His blood would wash away the sins of his people. And his blood would wash the hearts of his people to give them a new heart, to give them that that new heart that Jeremiah had promised 600 years ago. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, the author uses, I think, a very bold analogy. In Hebrews, chapter 9, it says that a will is only in force when someone has died. So a will... And it's really the same word for for covenant. Only has force when someone has died. Take, for example, Prince Charles. Prince Charles is 70 years old. And for 66 years, he has been the heir to the throne of England. And he's got a throne sitting there. 
He's got the, all the, the, the palaces, the wealth, the, the honor, whatever's left of it that belongs to the British monarchy. It's all sitting there ready for him, but it only becomes his when there's a death, when his mother dies. And, and this is what Hebrews is saying. Hebrews is saying that the new covenant could only come into effect with a death. There had to be a death. And it is the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ is what enacts and brings into life that tremendous new covenant that God promised to Jeremiah 600 years before. Now, I I want to stop and focus here on the fact that at the heart of the new covenant is a new birth. The heart of the new covenant is a new birth. If God's saying, I'm going to come and write my law on your hearts, I'm going to give you a new heart, then that's saying that at the heart of the new covenant is a new person. The new covenant brings about a new person. A new person with a new direction. When Jesus comes and writes his law on your heart, he creates a new nature, a new person, a new direction. And my question to you is, do you have that? Are you part of the new covenant? Have you been born again? Has Jesus come to you? And taken away that heart of stone and put in its place a heart of flesh. Are you born again? Has Jesus come and written his law on your hearts so that it's not an external law that, that, that condemns you, but an inner law that you love and then impels you to want to obey God, to want to please God? Have you been born again? Do you have that new heart promised by Jeremiah in 600 BC and enacted by the death of Jesus in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago? Are you born again? Not only is it wonderful to be born again and to have that new heart that God promised, it's actually desperately essential It's not just a bonus for a Christian to be born again. You must be born again. Didn't Jesus say that to Nicodemus? You must be born again, he said. You have to, you need the Holy Spirit to come and to give you that heart of flesh on which are written the laws of God. And I've asked you the question, are you born again? And your question back to me is, well, What are the signs? How can I know? How can I know that I'm part of this glorious new covenant? How can I know whether I've been born again? How can I know whether Jesus has come and written his law on my hearts? How can I know whether he's come and given me that new nature which the Bible promises again and again? Well, I've got some more questions for you. Is there a growing 
sensitivity to sin. A growing sensitivity to sin. Is there a growing hatred of sin in you? You see, as the Christian grows, I think we see development, don't we? At first, sin is this awfully tempting thing. and We so much want to do it and, and all that's holding us back is the knowledge that God disapproves of it. But as we grow in the Christian life, we learn to hate sin. It's awful, harmful, dirty, spoils us, our lives, the lives of those around us. Is there that growing hatred of sin? And I think when someone is born again, their tastes change, right? Let me just use one example. When someone's born again, there might be certain kinds of movies that you used to like, but now they just become repulsive to you. They just become awful. In fact, the other night, Gabby's over from Sydney and... We all wanted to sit down as a family and watch a movie and you look through Netflix and there's a thousand movies. There's nothing to watch, is there? We ended up watching Kung Fu Panda. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Thanks, Jim. And my 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 I find as I grow as I'm growing as a Christian, more I'm just really watching documentaries and kids' movies. That's, that's really what I'm ending, ending up watching. But, and I don't mean to make light of this, but when you're born again, your tastes change, right? There are things that you just can't... How can I watch this anymore? It's awful. That's a sign of the new birth. Is there in you a growing love for God's ways of truth and integrity and self-control? Do you see that growing in you? Now, by the way, it's a new birth that happens. It's not a new adulthood. So Jesus, when Jesus comes and gives you the new birth, you're not a fully formed adult. You're, a, you're an infant in Christ. So these things grow over time. We need to remember that. Is there a growing love for God's ways of truth, integrity, and self-control? And I see Christians suffering at school suffering in the workplace because they won't compromise. They won't do what is untruthful. They won't do what is dishonourable. They won't act with a lack of integrity. And Christians are willing to suffer for this. Are you seeing that growing in your life? That's a sign of the new birth. Are you growing to be much less concerned with yourself and much more concerned with the needs of others. That's a sign of the new birth. That's a sign that Jesus is writing his his law of love on your heart. When you start to forget yourself and your needs and what you're all about and where you're going and your dreams. In fact, those who are born again start to feel a little bit revulsed by an obsession with self. And they begin to care much, much more for the needs of others. And I think it's a beautiful thing, and I see this, a beautiful thing when we see young Christians 
And young people cop a lot. But I see young Christians showing a real concern for the elderly, for young mums who need help. That's a beautiful thing. That's a sign of the new birth. Are you... Is there in you less of a concern for your reputation and more of a concern for Jesus' reputation? That's a sign of the new birth, where you are willing for your reputation to suffer if Jesus' reputation rises. Where you are willing to live in such a way, in obedience to Christ and for his glory, that you don't care what people think of you, that's a sign of the new birth. A a sense valuing God's glory much more than your own glory, your own reputation. Is there in you a growing love for God's people? That's a sign of the new birth. Those who are God's children love to be with God's children. That's a wonderful sign when you, when you long to be. And I, and I don't know about you, but if I, if I miss a Sunday at Cornerstone for whatever reason, I feel frustrated and I feel disconnected. Even just one week away, I feel a sense of disconnection and I don't like it. And I think a sign of the new birth is, is a longing to be with your brothers and sisters, with God's people. One more question. Is there in you a sense of, I feel like I'm going backwards in my Christian life? Is that you? Do you feel like you're going backwards in your Christian life? That you, you look at yourself and you think, I, I, I think I'm, I just think I'm getting worse. That's a good sign in that that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. And the Holy Spirit is is within you, showing you God's ways. And you increasingly see how how far short you fall of that. I think that when a Christian feels that they're going backwards, they feel like they're, they're, they're more sinful than they ever were, that this is the Holy Spirit at work. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? Blessed are those who mourn, who mourn for their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that they, just, they know that they just don't have. Brothers and sisters, I, I'm asking you these questions because I want you to know whether or not you're part of the new covenant and whether you've been born again and whether the... Jesus has come and has given you that new heart. And these are the kinds of questions we need to ask ourselves. And if you're listening to these questions and you're thinking, I don't know if I do have that, that, that new heart. I don't know if I am born again. Then the thing not to do is to leave this place in despair. but to come to God and to confess your sin and to confess your hard heart and to plead with him to change.
to change you, to plead with him. Father, give me that new heart. Give me those new desires. Write your law on my hearts. And this is a prayer that we can all pray and we must pray. I hope this morning that you have seen the glories of the new covenant. And this is something, as I've said, that the the people of, of Israel, of Judah, 600 years BC, only dreamed about. But God would come and give his people a new birth, a new beginning, new hearts, an intimate relationship with him, hearts that, that, that love God and love his glory, his honour, his law. And we are living in that age. The new covenant has been enacted by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What Jesus meant is that the new covenant begins now in me, with my blood. And that's why Jesus said, commanded us to come to the Lord's table and to do this in remembrance of me. Now, in the Presbyterian church, in the Protestant church, how many sacraments do we celebrate? And when I'm talking about sacraments, how many ceremonies do we have in the Protestant church that involve physical signs? How many? Two, that's right. In the Roman Catholic Church, they they hold to seven. In the Protestant Church, we hold to two because the criteria for a sacrament is that it is directly commanded by Jesus Christ. That for us is critical. We will only do something if Jesus Christ has directly commanded it. And he has directly commanded us to go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's one sacrament, baptism. And do this in remembrance of me. And that's why the Lord's Supper is so important. Because we are so forgetful. And we forget the good things that God has given us. And our Lord Jesus says, come to my table, break bread, share wine. Remember that the new covenant has been enacted in my blood and you are part of it. And rejoice that I have come and given you new birth, new hearts, a new future, forgiveness for your sins. That's why we come to the Lord's table, because Jesus commands us to remember. We're forgetful, and we need to keep coming back and remembering these glorious new covenant blessings that have been won by his sacrifice on the cross. So our musicians will come up now. We're going to sing a song together, and then we're